Hey everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today I'm talking to Peter Kozak in what is an incredibly raw interview for both him and me. Mostly me. Because the thing is, uh, before sitting down together, Peter and I hadn't actually met. Um, He'd been ill leading up to the residency dinner, and then in the time after that, our schedules hadn't really overlapped for whatever reason. So there's a strangeness here. Um, It's a nice interview. It's really nice. But I get caught off guard from time to time. Like uh, at one point, I ask Peter a question and he then asks it back to me, which makes it a a kind of funny and honest and natural getting to know you interview. Or at least it was funny to me. Anyway, some housekeeping. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on iTunes, if you could give us a rating and a review, that'd be wild. It really helps. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at House Conspiracy and visit our website to see how we can support you at houseconspiracy.org. Now, on with the show. Peter's studio has been mostly blank in my experience. He has a table in the middle of the room, left here by Rhiannon and Dionysius, and on that table stacked up are a pile of books and boxes that I'm at least told he places his monitor on, the monitor that he cuts into the house with his computer every time he comes into work. The space is always clean, always orderly. And Peter is like that too, it seems at least. He's good and he's soft-spoken. And I don't really know what more to say because, as I said, this interview is the first and to date only interaction I've had with Peter and you know what I think I think that because of that this interview is actually going to be the best possible representation of the sort of art Peter makes so here's Peter Kozak Peter Peter Kozak makes films you make films um, because you're Peter Kozak when you make films um, do you make films because Uh, in a sort of technological way or are you very much like film just happens to be the medium that is capturing what you're doing probably the second thing what do you mean by like in a technological way like do are you a particularly tech heavy person when you create it like do you are you very into sort of like the right recording material teams that sort of thing or is it just like this is what I want to get across and this is the medium Hmm, I think in terms of like the technology part of it like uh, it varies, like, depending upon what the work is. Like, so, some works, I think, work better when it's, like, not on, like, a really, like, Swiss camera. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I've been doing lately has just been on my iPhone because um, I like that aesthetic. There's certain, like, features that it has that are suitable for, like, the work, you know? Mm-hmm. So, for example, <clears throat> like, it's iPhone 5S. They're really shaky. It hasn't got, like, an image stabilizer. Or it has, but it's, like, a really bad one. So you really notice the handheld. And when you do zooms on those phones, you've probably seen this, like it's like, you know, like it jumps like so fast. And at first I was just like, like that's really like, you know, but then Mm. I was kind of like, well, it's kind of cool if you can make it work for the work. But I think for some works, like, yeah, I definitely use better equipment um, if I want to have more control over the focus or like those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also like with the iPhone, it's like the um, white balance you can't control. So it's a bit like, if I was shooting this one thing where it was like in light that was changing heaps and it just it didn't know what to do, you know? Yeah. So with like a better camera, you can like control that. 
Yeah, yeah, because with the iPhone, you've got sort of a very low sort of color range um, on it. Do you find do you find that the uh, form, as in I guess literally the same way that people you know prefer film to digital, do you find that the form of the film that you're making, what camera you use, influences the work? And it kind of sounds like you've started with form here. You've started with the idea of making something with the iPhone 5S. Is that a common thing? And I think it's more like the the cool thing about like with working with an iPhone is that you always have it there. Mm-hmm. So if you stumble up upon something, you can just like immediately start filming it yep. without having like gone to uni, borrowed a camera, like gone mm-hmm. through all that hassle. Like, but when it's a more um, yeah something that is kind of like okay, I want to work on this a few times or like it's not just something spontaneous, then and it's something that's not gonna that'll be there next time you go there or whatever. Then you can afford. I mean, and it, I mean, I think it does also work on, like, does it suit that project to have like a superior camera, or sometimes it's better to have something really basic or really bad, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of. I don't know if that kind of answers yeah. your question. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a tangential yeah. way, I think it does. Okay. Um, okay. What okay. is it that you're working on with the iPhone? What What are you What are you doing with the iPhone? What's this project that suits um, the camera everyone has? The stuff that I've been shooting lately has just been like mostly just found and discarded objects. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been working with both like, uh, a, like a better camera and the iPhone for that. Um, some of the stuff worked better on the iPhone, but some of it needed to have like a better camera. Um, so yeah, it just depends what it is. Sort of. When, because I know, I know you're quite interested in sort of the subjects of decay and whatnot, and I'm really, I want, I want to sort of get into the more thematic stuff, but I'm interested yeah. in what does, it's funny because I, I think people who don't have sort of an intimate knowledge of film would be confused when you say something works better on a worse camera. Yeah. Could you articulate yeah. on that? Like, like what is, what is working better on an iPhone 5S, which by all measures is a worse camera? What is that? Yeah, that's a good question. So you're saying like, what's an example of something that like works better on a worse camera? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess like maybe mm, like when I first to like backtrack when I first started making video art, I used this really basic camera. It was a Canon Xs fifty five, which mm-hmm. is like a stills camera, but um, you can do video on it, but really short times and it's really grainy and crappy and it's a weird aspect ratio. Um, and that's what I'd shoot on because that's kind of the camera I had, you yeah. know. Um, but some of the footage I did this sh- this shot of like um, this video of uh, vapor trail. Um, being made and I zoomed in to the max so it was like pixely and, and horrible but it for some reason for that image it just really worked like a really schmick version of that I don't think would have had the same feeling because mm-hmm. it had like it's kind of not exactly like news footage but sort of that kind of kind of feeling so in that way I think in, for that particular work like it was good to have like low quality like so with it like phone filming um, I think there's can be something nice in, in a, a work where there's like handheld zoom focus all those kind of de- decisions being made as you're working they, that can be like a little bit sort of performative mm-hmm. you know and I think some works benefit from that kind of thing so for example like w- one work I made in third year uni was I went into this abandoned house and found all these smoke alarms that was all that was left um, and so it's just a pile of smoke alarms so I just filmed them for like an hour or so um and then when I was editing it, I was just going to use these shots where it was like the really nice shots, put them all together. And then I was showing one of my teachers and I had one shot that I kind of like um, accidentally put it in there where it was like this long shot where I moved the camera around and like change the lighting and like, mm-hmm. and when, when we were watching it, we were like, that's probably the best shot is where it, there's a lot of movement and all you see all those decisions, right? 
So I re-edited it so that all the footage had this long extended, why don't I move the camera here and then there and then focus and, you know, and that yep. was like, that having, because it was such a, the work was so minimal in its content that having like a kind of more of a human engagement was made it much more interesting. Mm -hmm. So that was a, probably the first time I started really thinking about that, like the way you film something being really important in that way. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, rad. Um, so I guess that's like an example of like when having more control over a camera is good. Um, here's an obscure question. Are you, are you a big fan of the Dogma 95 films oh, then? Yeah, I was probably still, I haven't watched them for a while. Um, yeah, that, uh, yeah, definitely. Like when I was in film school, I went to film school before art school. Mm -hmm. That was, um, one of the big things I was into that raw aesthetic you mean and like yeah, yeah, stripped yeah. down and. Just sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah like yeah. how many Corinne's work and that sort of thing. Just to clarify, Dogma 95 is, um, or do you want to explain what Dogma no, 95 is? No, you probably is? can do it better. All right. <laughs> Dogma 95 is essentially like this, this school of film, the idea being that there are certain, like, I think 95 rules you have to follow. Either 95 rules or it was made in 1995. I think it was made in 1995. And there's a series of rules. Um, like, you can't edit any music on top, the actors can't be professional actors. Um, you can't use any external lighting. The lighting has to be where you film and so on. And so it's this really restricted way of making films. And um, I think Julian Donkey Boy and The Idiots are probably the two most famous Dogman 95 films. Yeah, it's like The Celebration as well, was that? Yeah, I haven't seen that one though. Yeah, that's one as well. Anyway. Mm. Um, but you're, you're, were, you, were you directly in... Inspired by that towards this aesthetic, or were you drawn to that because this was what you were already doing? I think it's more like uh, I definitely am aware of that stuff and came from that background. But I think it's in terms of video art and in terms of like the stuff we're talking about with like crappy technologies and putting in the mistakes and things. I, I think that like there is something like can be something kind of vulnerable about like when you film stuff and you know like when you film something and it's like with stuff you kind of oh, edit that out that stuff that you think that you edit out is probably the most sort of vulnerable because mm. you kind of that's when you kind of screw up or if you're doing performance or like do you know what i mean or like yeah that sort of thing is probably the most interesting at least for me like in terms of like my interest like in like vulnerability for example mm. so that's why i think i'm interested in those things and that makes a lot of sense sort of drawing to also your sort of fascination with partially decay but that's a little different but with discarded objects Yep. So you also are then working with discarded footage. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, um, just to clarify for, for listeners, Peter and I haven't met yet um, because I don't know, our schedules haven't aligned somehow. We've been in the house. So very much this conversation is actually partially me getting to know Peter and getting to know Peter's practice as much as it is for you. So um, this is how awkward I am when I meet someone new. Um, and how awkward Peter is when he meets... Anyway. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so it's interesting, I guess, that connection between form and subject. Um, have you... Were you always... So you said you were, you were shooting with sort of old cameras with weird, um, weird aspect ratios when you were young. Were you, were you shown film by parents? Were you introduced it? Or was it just around? Um, um, how'd you sort of fall into it? I guess uh, when I was in high school, I went to Indipilly State High. Great school. And, um, oh, really? You think so? Yeah. Did you go there? No, I almost went there. I taught oh, really? there for a while. Where did you go? 
<laughs> I see this interview is about me now. Um, I went to a Cannon Hill Anglican College on the other side of town. Okay. Yeah. But you taught Inger. Yeah, briefly, yeah. Yeah, over a project during the summer. Okay. Mm. Uh, the reason why I brought that up is that's where, like, we had, like, a film class in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was when I first got introduced to, to film. Um, I had a really good teacher there who, like, would show us, like, music videos and stuff and, like, and bring in, like, his friends who are working on, like, skateboarding stuff or, like, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was sort of, like, what piqued my interest in that. Um, what was the question again? Um, the question was, how did you sort of fall into film? Fall into film, yeah. So that, so that, I guess that's why I went into film school, like, straight after high school. Because mm-hmm. um, that was what I was familiar with in terms of, like, I was really um, <clears throat> sort of seduced by, like, the medium of, of film. But, but yeah, I, I kind of got like a bit put off by actu- that, like the conventional film school stuff where it was like, you know, dramas, documentaries and all the kind of working groups and the politics and the shit of that. Yeah. Like, that didn't really <clears throat> work for me. Like, I guess for me, it's like, I'm like a creative person. I want to, you know, express my own stuff. And it was kind of like, I just found it, like my experience in film school was so much of it was helping other people realise their visions. And that doesn't really interest me, you know. Mm-hmm. Which is why you've maybe shifted to more of a visual art film yep. sort of thing. Yep, yep totally. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so did you finish your film school degree? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so you, you made it through despite yep. the politics. Yeah. When you went through film school, yeah. Um, yeah. you were realising other people's dreams. Um, did you find other people's processes, uh, did you learn from them or did they alienate you? Um, I don't know. Because like, other people's processes can be like... Edu- <coughs> Yeah, I'm a book coffin. Other people's processes can be, uh, yeah, educative or yep. alienating. I don't know which one was it. For Probably you? both. I, I think one of the things in film school that was like a little bit off putting, like at the time, was like a, a lot of people were just like ripping off like filmmakers that, that, that they liked. There was mm-hmm. a lot of imitation, like really blatantly so, you know. Who were they? Who were they imitating? Who, were the, who like, were the ones being like, imitated? Just for example, time? like there was one guy who was like a real fan of David Lynch. Mm-hmm. So everything he did was like a love letter to David Lynch, like not even vaguely disguised. What years did you recreate. go? This is 2000 to 2003. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it was just like he'd recreate like a scene with Twin Peaks or something mm-hmm. like that and change it slightly. And um, that I thought was really gross at the time. Like, and, and I guess other things like there was a lot of Scandinavian students um, and like you mentioned Dogma and stuff. And like they were kind of doing that with a lot of these obscure... Scandinavian films a lot of people who didn't know about them so they were just like oh this is awesome but I was just like that's totally that film <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean yeah. um, but I guess like, like looking back on that later I realise now that I don't know if that's such a big problem to be like in the early stage of your creative development to be just copying stuff you like because mm-hmm. I think in any kind of art well it is that really the first stage of developing your own voice it's just to kind of like build upon yep. things that you're a fan of and then through that you then kind of get your own style, sort of. Yeah, education through imitation, right? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think that translates across. I can't think of a medium it wouldn't translate across. Um, did you... Is there anyone you look back and you realise you were imitating or is there anyone you were aware you were imitating at the like time? Like when I was in film school? Or ever. Or like, like now? Who are you ripping off? <laughs> <laughs> Who am I like... Mmm... <laughs> mm. Like, I don't mean now. I mean at, at <laughs> any point. Um, it's okay. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I think... Hmm. 
I was like when I was in films, I was definitely inspired by Nicholas Winding Raffin. I think you say his name. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so he made like Drive and stuff. But his, yeah. his earlier works. Uh, have you seen any of his stuff like Pusher and stuff? I have not seen Pusher, and I have not seen the other one that came early. Yeah, what is it? Valhalla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valhalla Rising. Whatever. Valhalla Rising. I haven't seen yeah. either of those. I guess some of those films were like I was really blown away by mm-hmm. um, when I watched those. Like particularly like Pusher and. Um, the sequels to that like yeah pretty full on pretty confronting and sort of mm. stuff um, but a real cool like style that that style was like a little bit like documentary like yeah. a little bit like dogma but even more like a kind of fake documentary style um, yeah I really really dug that you know and that's probably like yeah where I was kind of like coming from when I was in film school yeah, rad. How have you found um, Winding Refn's recent output, sort of, of, of Drive, of Only God Forgives, and of um, Neon Demon? I've only seen Drive out okay. of those three. It's good. I mean, I'm not... I, I have a bit of a problem with, like, a lot of hardcore violence mm. on screen. I know Only God Forgives is, like, unbelievably violent. Yeah. So, I don't know if I can handle it. Like, I started watching Valhalla Rising and got a bit disturbed. Like, mm. um, So, yeah, I guess you need to be in the mood maybe yeah don't go near neon demon okay. um, it's even more violent it seems yeah it seems he's been escalating okay uh i don't know where he's gonna go next okay. i think he's gonna push for the x rating maybe okay okay um so yeah let's shift over to sort of what i've alluded to a yep. fair amount which is this idea of decay um and a couple times also you've brought up vulnerability <coughs> yep. as something that's similar to that and i guess i wanted to ask you like how does decay and vulnerability align? Yeah, I think, well, in terms of, like, my current work, which is, like, yeah, like, looking at discarded objects and found objects and stuff, I think, like, the interest in in those kind of objects is the fact that, like, I think it's, it's sort of, like, uh, firstly, like, when you... Um, look at those objects and, re- and really pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. I think that they can sort of like, because um, often we don't, like when we look at those kind of objects, we like overlook them, we ignore them, or we kind of, you know, it's not something you really, you really think about or put a lot of focus on. But when it's sort of presented in a different way, either in an art context or you might just discover something, um, some trash, it's just in a weird situation, you wouldn't normally see it. I think it can then um, be, has the potential to sort of represent other things. Um, and so I sort of think it's like, uh, particularly if you um, acknowledge you sort of our connection with that. So I think it, it, there's an easy way to like dis- distance yourself from trash. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, but I think if you sort of like identify with it in some way, mm-hmm. that just opens it up to like um, to being read or, or to being experienced in, in a way that I think is really vulnerable. You know, um, but I think that you have to be there has to be some sort of like identification like that you consciously think okay like in what way is that something like I've experienced or like you know what I mean mm-hmm. like in terms of my own experiences of vulnerability or rejection or resilience or something that you can kind of read into that object mm-hmm. so I think that's where it sort of crosses over if that sort of makes sense yeah it, yeah, it absolutely does it's all, it's all to do with sort of the framing and the, the reading for you how how often and how specific does an object need to be um, for, for you to be able to sort of find those things in it? Like, is it, is it an often thing? Like, is it a case of sort of you stare at a garbage bag for long enough and it can be anything you want? Or is it sort of like a, 
is there a series of uh, certain factors that need to kind of align? And what are those factors? And what are you, what are you seeing? I guess, yeah. what are you seeing? In order for an object to function in, in that sort of way. Like, yeah, well, in order for it to have meaning to you yeah. enough that you want to make work about it. I think, like, one of the first things I sort of look at, and I, I don't fully know, to be honest, like, when I come across something, um, how, like, yeah, what exactly it is about it that is interesting mm -hmm. um, or that I think has potential to be, you know, um, good material for a video. Um, but I, I think, I, like, obviously one thing is sort of, like, vulnerability is something I'm really interested in. So that's, you know, if I look for an object that has that straight away, you know, um, like something that's sort of, like, for example, I made one video of, like, a tennis ball that was this, just this decayed tennis ball and was just, like, bobbing around mm -hmm. in, like, really shallow water. And it just looked really sort of helpless. But it's not like that's what you'd see and go, oh, yeah, this is, like, helplessness, you know. It, but that's how, it, how, how I sort of responded to it. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of that what is what engaged me about that particular object. I think so in that situation, it was sort of the way it was moving, like, and the way it was sort of powerless and the way it was all, you know, kind of end of its life and so on. That sort of where it comes from. Mm. That yeah, that, that, that makes total sense. And I was going to ask for an example, so I'm okay. glad, you, okay. glad you gave one. Um, when you're when you're out and about, are yep. you are you looking for these things? Do these things find you as wanky as that term sort of is, um, or is this something that just sort of sometimes pops out and sometimes doesn't? Like you're a filmmaker, so in a yeah. way you're making work with your eyes. Yeah. Are you always looking to be making work or is it a certain mindset? Like I think, it, yeah, like I am always kind of a little bit on the lookout, but if I have like a deadline, like a, a, like some assessment or a show or something, mm -hmm. then I'll be like, hmm, like, could I film? <laughs> you know, and then I'm really hyper aware and, you know, discover something. But it is like that kind of work I'm describing, it doesn't really lend itself very easily to like, oh, I'm going to go out and make a work like that. It's kind of that you do need to like stumble upon it. Um, but I will sometimes, if, if I'm kind of on to something, like a particular theme or a particular feeling, it's like, well, I'll just look for that. And I'll deliberately go out and try and find that, you know. And sometimes that works, sometimes you don't find it. It's just, you know, oftentimes you, you find something else when you're, like, pursuing a particular kind of feeling or work you want to make. And it's like, just, you know, through the process of making it or the editing or something, <clears throat> that's when it kind of, what is really good or what really works comes through that. So... Mm, so, so when you when you go to make a work, I assume you're sort of trawling through a lot of footage. Sometimes, yeah. Um, how much often ends up in the work? How much gets discarded? Well, uh, like how much how much of the discarded objects are you then discarding? Yeah, uh, I don't know what the ratio. Maybe like a minute out of every hour of footage, maybe wow. is, is like this, you know. Yeah. That that you would use. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty like similar for a lot of filmmakers though. Like, I know one of my teachers at school. He was saying <clears throat> he's from New Zealand, and he was saying like he went on this road trip where he shot heaps and heaps of stuff. And the only good thing he filmed was on the way back. He was filming out of his windscreen, and he just changed the zoom on it. And there was like, a seventeen-second shot where he's currently this bend and it's like raining, and just that bit where the zoom shifts was the only good thing he filmed. Like seventeen-second shot. He had to like change the sound because he had techno playing and like all this shit. And it was just like. You know, out of hours and hours and hours, a whole day's work, that's the bit that... And you can never really tell that until you're in the editing room. You're like, oh, actually, that's the only thing that was good, mm. you know? So that's sort of how it works for me as well. It's, like, it's really hard to tell what's going to work until afterwards. And that's why, like, so many times you shoot something, you're just like, I wish I'd film that longer, like, almost yeah. always. But it's like when you're there, like, in the situation, 
there's so many things I did film for longer that were like terrible. And the one thing that was good, you know, you've just got just enough footage to be able to use it. And it's like, I, yeah, you can't really anticipate. So yeah, knows how it works. Do you have to teach yourself to sort of film things for longer to stay sort of still with an object or with something longer than you'd want to? Sometimes. But then it's also like if you did shoot a really small amount of something and you're like that, it just forces you to be creative like in terms of um, like I, I shot this thing. It was like these uh, Christmas baubles like hanging mm. off this awning on the pedestrian bridge between QUT and like the Maritime Museum. And it was like, I shot heaps of it, but the only shots that worked when you couldn't see anything else when it was like a blue sky background. And so I ended up with about like 30 seconds of footage, but I just reversed it, looped it, like it was on th three screens, like just kind of tweaked the hell out of it. Because when you watch it, you don't really know it's that short because it's the way it's edited, you know? Yeah. But it was like any shorter footage, I don't think I would have been able to get away with. I think you'd see, oh, this is like a really short loop. So some of that is kind of just like, you just got to, work with it and it ends up becoming what the work is and it might have actually been better than if I had had tons and tons of footage in that exact shot framing or whatever it was mm. so I don't think it's a problem as sometimes when I'm shooting I'll just be like oh, I don't know how long I should film this for but you just kind of trust yourself and sometimes you get it wrong but then you kind of it's just kind of like you know it's like kind of okay yeah you know what I mean? that's, that's interesting that I guess you're talking kind of on, on, on that same sort of topic going back to like the dogma 95 stuff you're talking about um limitation breeding yep. creativity yep. and yep. the work becoming what it is because of the limitations and totally, the limitations totally, around totally. Right. is that something is that something you've sort of is that a challenge that you set for yourself or is that just something that comes with the subject matter that you're exploring i think uh mm, good question I, I think it's sort of like yeah, I think you're right. Like the limitations do, like push your creativity and stuff. But I think sometimes, like I talk myself into that. Like I'm kind of like, yeah, it's like you know I can only film for this long because that's what the work has to be and it makes it better. And then I, I like film it with a better camera. Actually, no, I was just kidding myself. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it actually is a lot better on a better camera. That's not always the case, of course. But like sometimes it is. You can talk yourself into like, yeah, there's limitations and made this work awesome. But it's like, I don't know, you know. Mm. So. so it's 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 just sort of. You're not going to make any blanket statements for me because it's so context-based. What, what's what's the statement you want me to make? I don't want you. No, I, did, I just I just want you to. I just want a pull quote. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, no, I, I don't want me. I don't want you to say anything untrue. It's okay. just in, it's interesting, sort of. Um, yeah, often trying to find like an overarching thing about Peter Kozak. Okay. But but if there isn't one, that's more genuine and probably more interesting okay um yeah just, oh, this podcast is so raw <laughs> um as a filmmaker you're filming things in the world that yep. speak to you yep. and then there's a sort of a, a shift where you then need to compile everything together and communicate it to the audience is that is that something you're conscious of is there a specific shift hmm. there like when you enter the editor's room or I think the best way to answer that maybe is are you familiar with uh, that guy? He made the the um, act of killing and the like. Something the look of silence. Does that? He made another one. Of He's like an American. I haven't Jonathan seen either. Someone. I haven't seen either. But okay. Here they were. Okay. Great. What well, I was listening to some of his interviews and um, he was saying that with the second film, the look of silence, uh, that there were parts of that film like that worked really well but he couldn't like at the time he was making them he couldn't really see like 
he did this one scene where they're doing these confrontations with these um, kind of killers in, in Indonesia, and he was saying that like they did one confrontation where it was absolute chaos, like it ended up really bad. They called the police and they get kicked out, and, and he was like, all this footage is like you know complete waste. And looking at it afterwards, he's like, that's actually probably the key footage mm-hmm. of, of the film. And he, so he, what he was saying, his point was that a lot of the time when he's making these films, like the footage, what he's shooting is smarter than he is. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I relate to that. And it's like when I'm making something, it's like there might be like a layer to it or something that I'm not aware of what I'm doing. But then afterwards, I'm like, figure it out later. Like, or I see it later, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I sort of think that's, that's how I relate to that question. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's the idea that in the moment you're not going to see everything that you're going to be communicating. Um, so when you're in your editor's room, then uh, do you have a particular setup, um, particular rituals, anything like that? Um, or is it just you and a really basic desktop? Setup. Just yeah, my laptop and screen and Premiere and yeah, Premiere yeah. is your choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's sort of where it happens. I guess. Mm. Yeah. And um, you said you get like a minute for every hour. Do you watch the full uh, hours? Are you skimming through? I try to, but sometimes you just know like <laughs> something's not good, you know? And you kind of like, oh, like, like I, was, I was working on this video for, for the residency here and mm. I had this idea that it's my work and I filmed like for hours and I came back and like nothing worked. You yeah, know, well, maybe one shot, but like it's like all this footage and I was just like, okay. You know, just if this was like spatially confusing and the whole thing was like, it just did not work. But I had to try it. You know, I'm happy I tried. But for someone that is just that can be the experience. So. Yeah. Um. And so for your residency, you've sort yep. of been coming in, setting up, uh, editing here. But you've also been out shooting. Yep. Talk a bit about that. What's the process been like, sort of over the past two weeks now? Yep. Um. So yeah, I had a little bit of footage my my started at residency here. So I was editing that, but I realized I needed more. Um, so then going back to this location, which is this cave um, in Malkovat, um, and just filming. Uh, at first I was filming like earlier, earlier in the day, but then I found a lot of times it was better later in the day. Also, like, um, other people come to, to the cave. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, um, I felt a bit, like, uncomfortable filming when, like, these, like, groups of kids are coming through. So, like... <laughs> you don't want to be that guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, like, later in the day is, like, more safe and better light. So. But safe from the children. Yeah, 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 right, right. Because I was, I was there one time and like I was filming right in the back of the cave and these kids came in. And so I was just like, hey, how you going? Like trying to indicate I want to be friendly. And they just didn't say anything. Like they ignored me. And they came out and sat like right near me. And I just had this vision of them like stealing my gear. Like because uh, this friend of mine was telling the story. He was at a, like a skate park mm-hmm. and these kids came up and just started going through his bag like right in front of him. And he was just like, what? So I thought that might be what was going to happen to me, you know? Yeah. Um, so I just like started to panic and like just got the gear and got the hell out. I don't think they even noticed I had a camera. It was kind of behind this rock. But, um, and then after that, I was like, I should have like filmed them. Like, <laughs> or like the sound or something, you know? Like, yeah. but I was, yeah, a little bit worried because it was an expensive camera, you know? And I'm there by my, so I felt pretty vulnerable. So I like was sort of thinking like, next time I was there, I was like, as soon as I hear any sound of anyone approaching, get the fuck out of here, you know? Mm. So that's sort of, yeah, well, that's such a that's such a good way and making you sound so good when you spun a story about how you wish you filmed some kids in a cave. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's ethical problems. But no, it's fine. No, um, this isn't an ethics podcast. Okay. This is okay. an art podcast. No ethics. 
Um, no ethics here. Uh-uh. uh-uh. Good, good, good. Um, we, are, we are moral nihilists here. Um, so, you're filming out in the cave. Yep. Why? What's there? What's in the What's cave? What's in the cave? There's this smashed TV in there, and because it's like, you know, I'm looking at discarded objects. Mm-hmm. So it's an object in a sort of unusual setting. Um, and just seeing what that does, like, you know, TV in a hole. Like, um, yeah, there's something interesting about that. Um, but Did you find the TV there? Did you put it yeah, there? Yeah, no, I, I found it there. It's all smashed and so I think they, there's like a, like a kind of like a skylight in the cave. Okay. So I should presumably, like, people dropped it through the, through the, the hole and it smashed and rolled and just kind of sitting there with this void, you know, like where the screen's been, bits of glass around it. It's really, in, in the glass, there's like, uh, sort of reflections of, of the light coming from the top. So it's really mm-hmm. beautiful in a way. It's also really like, you know, a bit like this dead thing, you know, it's kind of like, and if you start relating to it in that way, it's a bit heavy. Yeah. Which is interesting. I don't know. So that's what I'm kind of playing with. Yeah. With that. Yeah. Cool. So over in, over in Malkabat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And um, what are you filming on for this one? Uh, so yeah, I'm filming on like a decent, like a good camera from uni for mm-hmm. this one because it's sort of like, uh, I think the reason why is because, well, the shots seem to work really well when it's just like really nice to still shots. Yep. So the, that sort of performative aspect I was talking about before with the handheld and all the decisions and all that kind of stuff doesn't really suit this particular thing. Because it's sort of meditative? Yeah, it's, it's more, it's, it's just, there's this real sort of like down in that cave, it's like there's no sort of light. It's very still. It's very mm-hmm. like, there's little bits, you know. Um, but so I think for that, purpose it's like you want to kind of it's like an absence there right so like to remove myself because when you see like the handheld and the zooming thing you really you're sort of slightly aware of the fact that there's a filmmaker there like videoing it kind of like not keeping it company but you know what i mean um so it's not this isolated thing when you kind of just have this tripod set up you can kind of walk out of there one shot nothing changes it's kind of just like it's like it it feels very alone you know Mm -hmm. and i think that was useful for this yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, again, form informing. Um, yep. So you're you're still at uni. You're doing your honors year now. Yeah, I'm almost finished. Yeah. How is that? Uh, it's pretty intense. <laughs> um, did you do honors? Ah, uh, no. Okay. Uh, it's it's good in a way, like, but it's yeah, it's a lot of work, and it's yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the television work is that is that part of your part of your honors? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What are you exploring? What's your what's your thesis or the thesis, it really is about how we relate to objects. I think um, I was looking originally at the start about advertising language and stock images and kind of how I felt alienated by them. And I sort of was looking at the way that they don't... Like those things I was sort of talking about, the parts of human experience I'm interested in finding kind of representations of in these objects I was not seeing in, in those kind of languages where it's sort of like the vulnerability stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I was thinking, well, how can I represent those things that are excluded or distorted by those languages um that's where it started and then so then i moved into a real focus on the objects themselves and i guess like one of the things i really looked at was that scene from american beauty yeah um with, with the, the, the bag plastic bag yeah. you guys have seen that the um but in a really critical way like i think that it is a really good example but i think the the problem with that scene where that frames that object is that it makes it you know it looks at it as like there's evidence of god and so on and so on there's no real identification with it. Mm. So I think in that way, it kind of sh- it shrugs identification and shrugs off sort of vulnerability as well. But I think if the main character was to be like, oh, this is, this, I relate to this in this kind of more personal, more directed way, 
I think it would be really different as opposed to like, oh, I relate to this thing as like this, you know, this embodiment of beauty and this like, um, you know, evidence of God or whatever. So mm-hmm. I sort of think that's, that's really not what I'm doing or not what I'm interested right. in. Um, but it's a good frame of reference to be like, well, that's a really famous thing that a lot of people know. Yeah. But, but here are the problems, you know. How do you feel about American Beauty as a whole? As a film, like when I was, you know, I don't know, 18, when I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, it's so good. Yeah. Um, but now, like I'm older, I look at it and I just think, oh my God, it's so fucked. Like there's so many things that are wrong with it. Like just for example, like the whole like displaced incest sort of thing with like where, you know, he's like in love with his, the main character like in love with his daughter's best friend. And then like the, also the, like the portrayal of the, the wife, like his wife, mm-hmm. where she's like this career-driven woman. And, and then it's sort of like, you know, she's really hateable, like and hated, but you know, um, so those kind of aspects of it I find really, really problematic. Yeah, because Kevin Spacey is not the good guy in that film. Um, I, I actually actually have the exact same... Same feeling thing. about it. Same, same feeling. Yeah, I haven't gone back and watched it, but yeah, I, around about 17, 18, when I first saw it, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I think that's the film that got me into film. Okay, okay. As, you know, film versus whatever, film versus movies, whatever, you know. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. But, yeah, I agree. It's it's a hard one to go back to and sort of go, oh. I think it's also really gross. I was watching, I was watching bits of it for my thesis and it's just how it's like really directed towards middle class people. I think like at the end of the, of the film where he kind of, you know, he dies and has this mm-hmm. revelation about beauty and how everything's you know, great and he has a gratitude for every part of his life. And I was sort of just thinking like, man, like that's so directed to one kind of audience. Like people in the third world or like people who are suffering, like... Like, they're not going to be like, yeah, I haven't the same feeling about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I just yeah. find it really uncomfortable. So, you, so you, want, you, want, you want your work to, to have a universalist kind of bent? Like, like, you're interested in making a work that's about being human and relating human, humanistic qualities to objects because... Yeah, you, yeah. Do you believe that hypothetically anyone would be able to relate with... Stuff like the TV crushed down the, the hole. Yeah, or... in some way, I would hope so. Like, mm. I, I think, like, in terms of the thesis, like, it is, like I was saying before, I'm really looking at that dehumanizing aspect of, like, advertising and mainstream media and shit, like, and that's why, that's where I'm coming from, right? Um, so I think, it, but I think it, it is, um, like, in terms of, like, where I come from, it, where I approach it personally, because I have, like, um, a lot of health problems and stuff. So um, that's what, it informs my interest in stuff like vulnerability and the, those sort of um, like decays that we talked about earlier. Um, but I think in terms of like I'm not, it's definitely not autobiographical. I'm definitely not interested in just like hey, like like this is my like, experience. Right, 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 right. So I want it to be re- relatable to other people. Um, so that's where I'm looking for things that we all experience, but that I might maybe be more susceptible to, like more engaged right. with. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So. Um, is it because I guess when I've heard sort of the idea of vulnerability um, yep. from you earlier in the podcast, I've sort of always thought sort of emotional vulnerability. But um, is it also for you about physical vulnerability as well, and the f- relating the physical vulnerability of humans to the to the physical object, or is it more an emotional? Probably more of an emotional, but maybe both. Yeah. Mm. So um, yeah, when when you're displacing sort of stuff onto objects, what? How much? And then maybe this, maybe you haven't answers, maybe you haven't got this far through your thesis, but how much does, so for instance, in terms of something being like relatable to, to lots of different people, how yep. much does our history and our sort of um, semiotic relationships with 
specific objects uh, culturally affect how we feel about them? Um, like, is there a way to relate with an object that will be universally understood by everyone in any context? Good question. I think uh, the... Um, I think it's really going to be aware of that, yeah, that some objects will be read differently in different cultural contexts. I, I think that in terms of the other objects that I'm using uh, thus far, like I try to find, well, like ones I've been seeking out or coming across and deciding to film, mm -hmm. uh, ones that are really commonplace objects, yeah. you know? Um, it's like a tennis ball. Like something yeah, that we, we, for example, we've all, basically every person has had some experience with a tennis ball or mm -hmm. some contact with it. So though it's like it's not an object you can really distance yourself from. If it was say baseball, something else that was a bit more specific, I think you might have a it would have a different reading. Yeah. You know, or a different people have a different experience watching it. Um, as opposed to something that's really like a tennis ball or like you know, a, a t an old T V, like things things that we we have some sort of history with or something. So I think yeah, it would de it, that's definitely I don't know if that's really Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, so I guess, yeah, um, so you said you're almost finished honours. Did yep. you do a mid-year intake? Oh, uh, I did the last part of part-time. So it's gotcha. like a one-year course, but I stretched over like a, a year and a half. I sort of changed my project halfway through, mm -hmm. so I needed more time to like resolve it. Yeah. yeah. So. And you're feeling good as sort of about the oncoming deadline? Uh, mostly. Mostly. Yeah, I, th I don't think I've any ever heard anyone finishing honours degree going, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, I feel so good. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. Not, it's not an emotion. <laughs> I don't think that is associated with them. So um, yeah. what's next then? What's next for uh, Peter Kozak uh, like after house and after, um, after honours? I have an exhibition lined up, but it's like a, a um, collab. Well, it's like a two-person two show mm -hmm. <coughs> um, in August, and that's, that's the only thing I have directly lined up. I also have, like in a month, I'm going down to Melbourne for like an art prize, but. Oh, cool. Yeah. What prize? Uh, the Footscray Art Prize. Oh, um, congratulations. Thank you. Um, yeah, just showing an older work from, mm -hmm. from uni. So yeah, um, that's kind of what I have on at the moment. Great. You've done collaborative um, projects before, haven't you? You've collaborated with um, Rhiannon Dionysius. Sort of, yeah. We had like a two person show, um, mm -hmm. part of the Barry Festival last year. Um, but the works, the works we made were separate, but we had a lot of conversations about which works to show, how to show them. Um, and so that, they were under, coming under similar ideas, broad ideas. <coughs> I meant her work's more, more about like uh, sort of gender and things like that, and yeah. sexuality, I guess, um, that doesn't really, I haven't really explored in my practice. Mm. Um, but again, I think when you have, when you have a show like that, like, or any kind of two-person show, like, you don't want the works to be doing exactly the same thing, no. you know? So it's good to have like that they're exploring different areas within the same sort of territory. That sort of mm. yeah. and yeah, vulnerability and sort of Rhiannon's exploration yeah. of kind of the body. Like, I guess that I guess yeah. that maybe that's a thing, like the vulnerability physically in her yeah. works and emotionally. Yeah. In yours, as you've sort of talked about today. So yeah. um I guess like landing the podcast, um, is there anywhere people can find you online or are you sort of an enigma? Uh, I have a website, just like my name, like www.peterkozak.com. Www mm -hmm. The spelling um, will be on the podcast. Yeah. Easy. Sort of it. Great. Well, thank you so much no for um, doing you. this. Thanks for chatting. It's great. And I uh, can't wait to see what you do. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the House Conspiracy podcast recorded at House Conspiracy and produced by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. If you have feedback or you want to say hi, or if there's something you'd like to see us do, you can email us at house at houseconspiracy.org and you can email me directly about ideas for future podcasts at jonathan at houseconspiracy.org. You can also support us by becoming a member or by donating to us at houseconspiracy.org slash donate. See you next time.